looking for life in the outer planets. Where will we go? Is it in the big gas giants or their moons? Hi, I'm Jim Green, Chief Scientist at NASA, and this is Gravity Assist. On this season of Gravity Assist, we're looking for life beyond Earth. I'm here with Dr. Athena Costenis, and she is the Director of Research with the French National Center for Scientific Research at the Paris Observatory in Moudon, France. She is involved in several space missions for the European Space Agency and for NASA. Her focus is on the gas giant planets, Saturn, Jupiter, and all their moons. And she's considered one of the foremost experts on Saturn's moon, Titan. So today we're going to talk about the possibility of life beyond Earth in the realm of the giant planets. Welcome, Athena, to Gravity Assist. Hi, Jim. Happy to be here and chat with you today. Well, you've gotten very involved in what we call astrobiology, that topic of searching for life. How did you get so interested in it? Jim, it's easy. It's really easy to get interested in astrobiology or exobiology, as we used to call it. Um, so as you say, this is a study of the, the origin, the evolution, um, and, and life in the universe in, in general. And we consider a question in astrobiology of whether extraterrestrial life exists, you know, and if it does, how humans can detect it. And this is where an astrophysicist like me can play a role. We, we try to identify places uh, favorable for the emergence and sustainability of life, which we call habitable worlds. So early in my astrophysics studies at Paris Observatory and uh, the university, I opted for planetology. Okay, so, so planetology, obviously, we're studying the planets in our solar system. And the reason I went that direction is probably because I just wanted to be able to go places, <laughs> far places, and check out my models, you know, preferably with a space mission. I I'm hooked on space missions. You know, it's like I love imagining, uh, building, flying, and exploiting a, a space mission. So the Voyagers 1 and 2, which were launched in the 70s, were designed to go and visit those outer planets, those gas giants. And they made fantastic gravity assists to go from one to another. How did you get involved in those? Jim, those missions were amazing when you think when they were launched and what technology they were based on. I got involved because I did my PhD uh, thesis on the Voyager infrared data from an instrument called IRIS. And it was the instrument that told us everything about the temperature composition of Titan's atmosphere. And can you imagine, I did that 10 years after Voyager had encountered uh, Saturn in 1980, and it was one flyby. So anyway, Titan proved to be addictive. Um, and I was just so attracted by this world. <laughs> it is, you know, this, this is a very big satellite, you know, second only to Ganymede in the solar system. And we found it had an atmosphere uh, resembling the Earth. And it kept the secrets of its surface. Well, the Voyagers were so successful and really showed us some fabulous things about Saturn and the, and the moons and Titan in particular. We just had to go back. And that's where the idea of Cassini came about. And so NASA 
and the European Space Agency got together and they each decided to create a role. What were those roles on Cassini for NASA and ESA? Yes, it was it was amazing. Cassini is still what I believe to be the most uh, tremendous, uh, tremendously successful, actually, uh, international collaboration for a mission because NASA and NISA came together and with shared roles. You know, uh, NASA was going to build the orbiter, the spacecraft, the Cassini spacecraft, and it carried the Huygens probe, which was developed by the European Space Agency. But these two worked together in every scientific aspect that we learned finally for Titan. Well, how long was Cassini in orbit around Saturn before we decided to drop off the Huygens probe into the Titan atmosphere? So Jim, um, the Cassini mission, the whole spacecraft arrived in um, around Saturn and went into orbit in July, 2004. And it started immediately making observations. Christmas time, 25th of December, 2004, it launched the Huygens probe towards Titan. And the probe went down, made a descent, a beautiful descent through the atmosphere of Titan on the 15th of January, 2005, landing on the surface and sending back all the beautiful images and data we got during the descent. And after we had landed, which was not exactly expected at the time that we would land and survive, and all of this data was relayed by the Cassini orbiter. Yeah, that was a fantastic landing. You only needed the parachute because the density of the atmosphere is larger than here on Earth. Exactly. Even though it's dominated by nitrogen, just like the Earth's atmosphere. That must have been an exciting time. Tell us about that. So the first image I saw was the one after it had landed where we saw those pebbles you know, sprawled around the surface on something that looked very orange and dark. Um, and and I looked out, I looked at the image and I said, who put that Mars image on, on the screen? You know, move it away, we're waiting for Titan. And then my colleagues turned around and said, it is Titan. And I said, oh my God, oh my God. <laughs> I think I couldn't breathe, you know. It was amazing. It was, it was enormous that we could see this surface that we had speculated on for so much time. And during the descent, we saw the channels. We saw the channels. We saw the, the hills on the side of what uh, ended up being the landing site, which was a dry lake on Titan. Um, uh, recognized immediately, you know, by, by Mar Martin Tomasco, the PI of DASR, who knows about dry lakes in Arizona. <laughs> so those channels were rivers that were feeding into that landing spot, that dried lake. Is that right? Absolutely. We could even see the bays. Wow. We could see shores. Um, all of this, you know, has been put together in in in, in videos and and films the the team put together. But for us, at that precise moment, it was it was like incredible. Uh, we could also identify at the time we didn't know it, but we could identify the dunes, you know, a little further up mm. uh, be, uh, beyond the hills. A and it was so amazing to find all these features so similar to what we have on Earth in a in a in a far away object that sits ten times further from the sun than our own planet. Mm. Well, you know, we now know there's liquid on the surface of Titan, but that's not liquid water, it's methane. So were those rivers of methane, do you think? Absolutely. Methane plays the role of water. 
on Titan. If you think water on the Earth, you have the uh, the hydrological cycle, you have the, the water evaporating from the oceans, going into the atmosphere, condensing, producing rain, producing, uh, producing haze and condensates and clouds, and falling on the surface in the form of rain. We have exactly the same thing on Titan. It's amazing, but with methane. Well, do you think we'd find life on Titan? And if so, how would it be so different than here on Earth? Well, I don't know if we could find life on Titan, but there are several criteria that are satisfied and think, make us think that Titan is probably the most habitable environment that we have in the solar system because it has a stable substrate. You know, there's the surface where an organism can live. It has available energy sources. That's another criterion we need. Uh, that's from solar radiation, although it's a hundredth of what we get on our own planet, but it has some solar radiation. It has solid, solid body tides caused by Saturn and even perhaps radiogenic energy production. It has organic chemistry, this fabulous organic chemistry producing prebiotic molecules in the atmosphere, like hydrogen cyanide, which is a key molecule for prebiotic chemistry and a precursor molecule actually for amino acids. And it has two kinds of solvents uh, present inside Titan. We have the water ocean, the subsurface liquid water ocean with perhaps a fraction of ammonia to keep it like that. But I think if we find life, you know, um, and in spite of all the harsh temperature conditions, minus 180 degrees on the surface, uh, and light conditions, like I said, there isn't very much light. I think it would be different from what we know on our own planet. But then it gets so interesting, now, amazing. Well, you know, uh, NASA eventually decided that we needed to uh, eliminate Cassini from orbiting Saturn completely so that it wouldn't crash on Titan. And um, I had a little something to do with that. But uh, <laughs> uh, so we decided that we needed to ditch Cassini into Saturn in, uh, in 2017. So yes. where were you on that day? And how did you feel about that whole idea? First, thank you, Jim. I think it's a wonderful idea to, to preserve Titan and preserve the environment of Titan. Um, right. It was such a fitting end for such a wonderful mission. It was a great idea, this grand finale, you know, brave plunge into Saturn, um, but not before, you know, it had accomplished another 22 orbits uh, between the planet and the ring, sending us information up until the end when it burned into Saturn's atmosphere. I was at JPL. I was there with colleagues and friends and uh, watching actually uh, on the screen yourself and other people describing and talking about the mission and also looking at the signal that Cassini was sending back a little bit that, like what you have in a hospital, you know, with, with, with a patient and seeing this signal disappearing little by little um, until the mission was declared dead. And in the French delegation, we had brought a bottle of champagne and some glasses <laughs> and we drank to Cassini's success, you know, and, and to more such missions in the future. Well, you know, Cassini and the Huygens probe in particular did such a fantastic job looking at Titan. We just absolutely have to go back. Oh, and now yes. we're moving, yeah, now we're moving <laughs> towards that. And that mission is called Dragonfly. So are you going to be involved in Dragonfly? 
Jim, I would be involved in any mission that would return to, to, to Titan. I would even fly there if I could. Um, we have so much more to learn. You know, about 10 years ago, I proposed a mission to return to Titan with an orbiter, a lander, and a balloon. You know, it was called Tandem wow. and became the, the Titan-Saturn system mission in collaboration between right. NASA and NASA. Um, and many colleagues joined that effort at the time. Dragonfly is a new generation. It's a great mission. My God, so modern, so fashionable. You know, a drone oh. <laughs> uh, that, that goes there. What can be more fashionable than a drone that, you know, that goes there and explores the surface of Titan, hopping right. from one place to the other, you know, to get to get different sites of interest. And it's a rotorcraft lander mission. Um, to sample materials and determine the surface composition in different geologic settings, because with Huygens, we only went to one place. And it will also characterize the habitability of Titan's environment, you know, to investigate how far this prebiotic chemistry we're talking about has progressed and, and to search for chemical signatures that could be um, indicative of water-based or hydrocarbon-based life or organisms, but at least study the conditions. I love that concept. <laughs> mm, I do too. Yeah, I can't wait for Dragonfly. But uh, the European Space Agency is moving forward with a spectacular mission they call JUICE. And so what is JUICE all about? And where is it going? So, so JUICE is the first large class mission in ESA's Cosmic Vision. It's called Cosmic Vision 2015-2025 program. Um, and it's planned for launch in 2022, arrival in Jupiter around 2029, 2030. And it will spend more than three years making uh, detailed observations of Jupiter. And three of its largest moons with a focus on Ganymede, but also Callisto and Europa. And it's to characterize the conditions that may have led to the emergence of habitable environments uh, among the Jovian icy satellites with Again, a special emphasis on, on Ganymede because it, Ganymede provides us with such a natural laboratory for the analysis of, of, of uh, the nature, evolution, and potential habitability of icy worlds in general. But also, it is a class of objects in the universe, in our galaxy, that we call the ocean worlds, that have these liquid water oceans underneath the surfaces. Um, it's amazing. I was involved from the beginning in the definition of um, the development of the mission as the European College scientist, and I'm sitting on the edge of my seat to see the launch in time. Yeah, 2022 is coming up pretty fast. Well, JUICE is going to end up orbiting Ganymede, and Ganymede turns out to be one of my favorite moons. It's the largest moon in the solar system. What else about Ganymede is so exciting? Absolutely. It's one of my favorite moons also, uh, Jim. It's, it's amazing. Ganymede is one of the objects also where we find indication of this on the surface of resurfacing from something that was previously in liquid form, probably under the, the, the surface. And where we have indication by the fact that this is uh, a satellite that has an induced magnetic field, which actually interacts with the magnetosphere of Jupiter and so on, but it has an induced magnetic field that indicates the presence of a liquid water ocean underneath its surface. It's the best indication we have to get today of that. It also has auroras. I mean, it, it's amazing that you find that around such a distant object. 
So we do need to go back and look closely uh, at Ganymede, not only because you know it's our biggest satellite, the solar system, but because we want to disentangle all of these interactions of the magnetic field and the magnetosphere of Jupiter and try to discover exactly what it's telling us on its ocean properties. Now, in addition, the, with ESA's JUICE, uh, NASA's launching the CLIPPER mission, and CLIPPER is going to uh, Jupiter, uh, but it's going to study Europa. So when you think about JUICE at Ganymede and, 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 and uh, the NASA CLIPPER mission at Europa, the synergy is going to be fantastic. We're going to learn all kinds of things, and I can't wait for that to happen. Amazing. Can you imagine two missions, two missions in the Jupiter system? It deserves it. And, and I think more than different, they're very complementary. Um, you know, yeah. Europa and Ganymede are, 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 are the divas, you know, in the Jupiter system. <laughs> uh, if you're looking for habitable worlds. Um, and while the instruments, some of the instruments are similar, there's overlapping um, uh, uh, observations that we're going to do. There's a lot of complementarity. So, you know, all these outer planet moons have energy from the tidal forces and, and they have fabulous environments. Could they actually have habitable environments? Absolutely. I mean, I think these icy moons are so far from, from the, the, the notions we had that they were dead bodies, you know, a few decades back, we thought that these moons are just dead bodies. They have no activity and so on. We know today that they're very much alive. They have processes in there like the tidal forces that create cryovolcanism, for instance. This is, this is a phenomenon we only find out there where you have volcanoes that actually do not eject lava, they eject ice. Cryovolcanism is a source of energy very important for these satellites. They have organic chemistry that we find every time we look at their atmospheres or exospheres. They have liquid water oceans underneath their surfaces. Um, and and they, all of these elements put together make those satellites very, very, very habitable environments that we really need to go back and investigate. These are not things that we can simulate in a laboratory on Earth. So we need to go back. But which one is the best? I think every scientist has their own favorite object. And of course, you know mine. I mean, I think, I think, I think Titan is the most fantastic candidate for a habitable environment. But then Europa and Enceladus and Ganymede are all in my favorite places list. Yeah, I agree. Titan is so exciting because... It's so diverse, and if it was going to have life, it's going to be life completely different than what we have here on Earth. Well, you know, I heard that you've gotten uh, degrees not only in astrophysics, but in literature. I mean, I had a tough enough time just getting a physics degree. How did this happen? <laughs> so, uh, not without a challenge. <laughs> well, I was very much interested in English literature at school at the same time as in physics and astronomy. So when I got my baccalaureate, I came to France and enrolled in two Paris universities, Sorbonne, Nouvelle on one side, and Pierre and Marie Curie, you know, for sciences on the other side, because my family wasn't at all convinced uh, that I, there was a chance for me to get a job in astronomy. Um, so they said, well, doing this literature, you can always find a job with that. 
Um, and so I started my English literature PhD uh, at the same time um, as the astrophysics one, uh, but haven't finished it yet, Jim, I have to admit. I hope to do that sometime, uh, maybe when I retire and I'm sitting in front of the sea in some <laughs> Greek island. <laughs> that sounds great. Well, you know, I always ask my guests to tell me what was that event or person, place, or thing that got them so excited about being the scientists they are today? I call that a gravity assist. So, Athena, what was your gravity assist? Jim, I decided to become an astronomer when I was 15. I never wavered or changed my mind. So, but I got a huge boost in my life from a person and a place. The place is Greece a home of Icarus, you know, who flew through uh, mm -hmm. space and uh, went all the way to the sun. And, and it's a land of dreams, you know, coming true also, because the people there know how to survive in the face of difficult conditions. But I was strongly encouraged by my family and friends, but in particular by my father. And my father, Panayotis, was a pilot in the Greek Air Force who trained in the huh. States, um, in Dayton, Ohio and later became major general, and he had a passion for flying. And he shared that with me, and I think somehow he managed to instill this in my mind. Um, my brother is also a pilot, so you see we come from a family looking at the skies, but I decided to follow and even fly higher and, and further, but I really got a gravity assist from them. <laughs> wow, that's great. Well, Athena, thanks so much for joining me in discussing this really fascinating object, Titan. Thank you, Jim. It was wonderful talking to you today. Well, join me next time as we continue our journey to look for life beyond Earth. I'm Jim Green, and this is your Gravity Assist.